Well, I'm glad to see y'all have exercised your free will and came here tonight. I exercised mine when I said I would do this, and I hope you don't regret it. So, <laughs> no, it'll be fine. And after weeks of classes where we're having to talk about so much kind of depressing things, we even had dismemberment and assault last week, and all kinds of things, we get a little break, and we get to do the Book of Ruth tonight. And while this is still in the middle of the time of the judges and there's still all that happening, in these four chapters, not so much. (laughs) So we will get to go through the book of Ruth. And it's considered one of the loveliest complete works, short works in literature, not just by those in the church. Um, It's often very much so quoted at weddings, this one first part that we'll get to in a moment. It's also probably very familiar to you, but uh, it's a lovely story, and we'll be going through it. And even though it's kind of a story story, there's something quite big that happens out of it, Uh, very important to all of us, so it has meaning. All right, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version doing this tonight. I have my Bible up here, but I printed things out I thought I could see maybe better in this light. So I have it, but I'm reading what I printed. So, All right, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Let me get my notes here. Forgot to separate them, sorry. All right. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion's, how I've always pronounced it. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These two, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. I'm so glad I didn't say Oprah. I knew I was going to say Oprah, but I said Orpah, Orpah. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, you know, we do have a sad beginning here, but uh, Ruth, we're really not sure uh, who wrote the book of Ruth, Jewish tradition credits Samuel, but in reality we really don't know. <laughs> uh, and it does occur in the days when the judges ruled, like I said earlier. I like to tell name meanings, so uh, we'll just start with Elimelech. Uh, means my God is king. He had planned to live in, in Moab until this famine had passed. He was going to be a sojourner, which was a resident alien. They're not really from there, don't plan to be there forever. But they're going to live here for a while. So he was going to sojourn in, in, in uh, Moab. Naomi means pleasant. And then Malon apparently means sickly, which is kind of <laughs> sad since he dies right off in the beginning of the story. And Chilion, I've got failing, is the word that I saw. Uh, they were Ephrathites, but it's, it's another name for the region of Bethlehem. Uh, Orpah. Means stubborn. Although I did see something else that said it's possible it could mean neck. Have you ever seen that, Neil? 
<laughs> I, I don't know. One, one thing I read said it could possibly mean neck, which was a term of physical beauty in, in that time period. But I think we'll go with stubborn. That's, <laughs> is that what you've heard probably? Stiff neck, stubborn, yeah, yeah. And then Ruth uh, usually is thought to mean friendship. All right, the Moabites. We've already heard about them earlier. Uh, anybody remember remember who they were? Uh, they were the descendants of Moab, who was the son of Lot and his oldest daughter. You know, after um, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, and his two daughters got him drunk and had relations with him and got pregnant by him so that their line would keep going. Well, this is that Moab was the son of the oldest daughter in Lot. Uh, They were often enemies of Israel. Um, They weren't prohibited in marrying Moabite women, but they were discouraged in doing so mostly because of their commitment to other gods. And so we see here that uh, Malon and Chilion did take Moabite wives. Uh, So... Naomi has found herself a widow without any heirs. And in this time period, that's, that's really, really a tough and hard thing. Um, in this time, widows would have lost all their social or economic status. I saw one uh, commentator uh, equated almost to like the homeless in our society. Now, they really just don't have any standing and, and uh, would be economically economically dependent on just society at large just to take care of them. So she's in a, in a real bad way here. It's not just the loss of her husband and her two sons, but she's found herself without any real hope of how to even take care of herself. All right, let's pick back up in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, referring to her sons and her husband. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Um, She's encouraged them to go back to where they came from, back to their, their own homes where their mother was, and start over and look for another, uh, another husband. But uh, they don't, they don't want to hear about it. it says, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband if I should say I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she keeps saying daughters-in-law, keeps referring to them as daughters-in-law. Uh, Naomi has an attachment to them too, but, but she cares about their well-being and basically doesn't want them to hang around with her since she feels she has no future, no, no hope, and no way to give them husbands. So, all right. Now this next part, this is the part you probably have uh, 
quoted at weddings and things like that, even though that's not what this is. But probably the most famous part of of Ruth is this next section, Ruth's response to Naomi. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So, a very impassioned plea and commitment. Uh, Ruth is, is... whether she realizes it or not, I guess she said it, is committing to God and his people and not returning to the false deities of the, of the land she was from. She's forsaking all that she had known to follow the one true God. However, at this point, you could maybe say this is more a commitment to, to Naomi, uh, but to be committed to Naomi in this way is also you know, committing herself to the one true God and leaving all that she had known before. All right, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. They returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So this uh, trip was probably about seven to ten days, which was really pretty dangerous for two women at this time to uh, be traveling alone. Uh, I would say God was with them in this journey, if you ask me, but uh, she seems to think God has left her completely, and her state is... uh, Hopeless. Mara, in fact, means bitter. The barley harvest they mention of, this is the earliest of the harvest seasons because the rainy season's coming to a close, so they're getting ready. And that really plays a big part in the story, the, the harvest. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Nashville, so I'm not a, uh, didn't grow up on a farm, didn't grow up in the country, so uh, this was a foreign process to me. Uh, I'm going, I'm going to actually quickly go over these steps of what they were going to do because it, you can see it when you read the rest of the story. Uh, harvesting of grain, according to the NIV Archaeological Study Bible, has eight steps. Who knew? Uh, first, the ripened standing grain was cut, usually by men, with hand sickles. I have seen those. I do know what those are. Uh, I assume y'all do. Uh, I don't know. Small hand tool, teeth, blades, swing back and forth. Okay, then after that, the grain was bound by men and women into sheaves, which we sing about in some of our songs, bringing in the sheaves, and that, that's the illusion we're supposed to see of that. Uh, then the stalks of grain that were left behind were gathered, which is called gleaning, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, and the gleanings were left to the poor. Then the sheaves were transported to the threshing floor. Uh, 
the threshing floor. That's interesting. I, I actually got on the computer again. I've seen this before, but I got on there this afternoon to actually see. I, I wish I'd been able to put something up there, but I didn't. What the threshing floor probably looked like. And they still use them uh, in other parts of the, the world. Uh, but the threshing floor was like a big, flat surface uh, where they prepared the threshing of the grain. It was usually located at the edge of a village, uh, usually a very large, flat rock outcropping, like a big, large area that's just all rock-like, usually flat. If they didn't have flat rock, uh, they would prepare the ground by kind of leveling it and pounding it to create a really hard surface because they really needed a hard surface to do this. Uh, so the threshing floors where that, that happened. The grain was loosened from the straw. That's threshing. Uh, the, they did it by treading uh, over it with cattle or the wheels of carts or something called a threshing sledge. Have y'all seen those? I know some of you probably have. I, I found that online too, and that's very interesting too. It, it really kind of just looks like a wooden sled, a little bit larger, that... Uh, Either an animal would pull, or I guess a person could pull it, but they would weight it down, and underneath it had stones or some kind of something that when uh, weight was pushed down on it and it was dragged, it would separate the uh, grain. Uh, I saw some videos where they had people's kids were riding on them. They were having a big time, but they, they were using them for the weight, and, and that's how they would do that. Or sometimes they'd just let the animals walk on it and kind of separate the, uh, the grain. Okay, the grain was tossed in the air with the winnowing forks. Winnowing, you've seen that, I guess. Um, the, the wind, which usually came up for a few hours in the afternoon, it would blow the straw and the chaff and leave the grain on the ground. So, I don't know if you've seen pictures of that, or maybe you've done that. I don't know. Uh, but when you would throw that up and there's a good wind, all that loose stuff just blows away and, and the grain would fall back down, which we got examples of that being used as a allusion too in the Bible about separating the, the chaff and uh, it being burned in the fire and more than one place where that, that illustration is used. Uh, the grains then sifted to remove any foreign matter such as small stones or refuse gathered when it was scooped up from the ground. Uh, grain is very important to them. It's a big part of their, uh, their staple. Uh, and then they would bag it and transport it and for storage. So some of this story is going to take place on the threshing floor and, and have to do with with all this that we just talked about. All right. Let me throw that in the floor. <laughs> all right. Let's start with chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, so he's a relative, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she didn't mean Boaz at this time, just whoever would let her. Um, and she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Uh, Boaz means in his... In him is strength or swift strength. Um, and when it says a worthy man, it, it literally could just say a man of valor. So this is a good, a good person. 
Uh, he's a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And here's that word gleaning again. I said we'd talk about that again. Uh, I've got three different verses in the Old Testament that that talks about this. They're almost the same, but Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. And I'm reading from the ESV. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then Leviticus 23:22, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That's almost the same words. And then lastly, Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So... It's under their own law that they're uh, to leave things for for those people that were mentioned there. Okay. Now Ruth, uh, she just happens to come to Boaz's property. It's not an accident. I mean, she may think that it was, but uh, this is God working here. This is God's providence. This none of, nothing in this story is by accident. Uh, Okay, what verse did I leave off at? Let's see. Verse 4. Am I ready for 4? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. It's like a greeting and a response back. Then Boaz said to the to his young man, Who was in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? So she's caught his attention. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. It's not a huge town here. They all know exactly what's going on. So he's aware of who she is, as far as once he's told that's who she is. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So she's, she's a worker. She's out there trying to uh, provide for her and her mother-in-law for, for Naomi. That commitment to Naomi is, is central to this whole story and what impresses most everyone with her, uh, her commitment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Uh, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother 
and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So he's looking out for Ruth here. And remember, even though this story seems to be mostly nice and all, all that bad stuff outside is still happening. So he, he's having to uh, tell the people not to touch her, uh, and especially with her being foreign. They probably wouldn't have held her in enough regard to to not assault her, to be honest. Um, so Boaz has basically said, don't stray from this field. Um, you know, I've instructed everyone to leave you alone, basically. So Boaz is looking out for her. Um, let's see. And let's go to verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Uh, and this wine was probably more of a condiment. This isn't like drinking wine. <laughs> uh, from what I read, this was more like just dipping it in oil almost. It was probably oil and wine. Um, so they're not sitting around just getting drunk. They're working. They're, <laughs> they're eating and, and dipping the bread. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So, <laughs> she's not getting, she's not only getting to do what they normally would do for, for sojourners and things. He's pulling a little bit out. Make sure there's some extra. He's, he's favoring her a little bit and trying to take care of her. He's kind of showing the the uh, spirit of the law, not right up to it. Uh, he, he's going beyond what's required here, which is one little quick lesson you can get out of this. Is that's probably more how we should be, you know, not doing the bare minimum. Try to try to have the spirit of what we're supposed to do, and not just how little do I have to do to to meet what's required. So I, I feel Boaz is doing that here. He's uh, really living within the spirit of, of what God intended by those those laws. So verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, which, it's hard for me to believe, but this, everything I read said that's about 30 to 40 pounds. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, said it's about a month's worth of grain ration that was allotted to the male workers. So, and she, she, so he definitely left some more for her, it sounds like. Um, she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So when she didn't finish all her lunch, she didn't just discard it. She saved it back and took it to Naomi. She's trying to provide for Naomi as best she can. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, 
The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So that really was a concern. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, she said, she said he's uh, one of our redeemers, which is not something we, we do. Um, I'm going to again read something I found that explains it better than I'm going to in my own words, but it's about the family redeemer that she's talking about. Uh, it says in the book of Ruth, the phrase family redeemer has a specific technical meaning. Uh, elsewhere, the underlying Hebrew term goel is translated nearest relative. According to the law, family redeemers had three main responsibilities in Israel. Uh, one, and this comes out of Leviticus 25, stipulates that if an Israelite became so poor he had to sell his land, a family member was to pay off the debt so the land would remain in the family. If no relative could purchase the land and the seller was unable to buy it back, the land still reverted to the seller or his heirs in the Jubilee or the 50th year. Uh, And it shows two examples being one, this one with Boaz, and then in Jeremiah there's an example of this too. Uh, Another responsibility would be if an Israelite became so poor he had to sell himself into debt slavery. A family redeemer was to buy his relative from service to a non-relative. So I guess they could be in service to a relative. I don't know. (laughs) That's what that implies. Uh, The poor Israelite would pay off his debt by working for his relative, who could be expected to treat him better than a stranger would, you would hope. And then this third one, uh, this comes in the... Says the family redeemer was to pursue justice for an Israelite killed by another's hand under conditions described in Numbers 35. So this concept of the family redeemer, according to this, reminds us that God is the true owner of all things. He commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and the New Testament presents Jesus as the perfect family redeemer, buying us from slavery to sin and death into which we had sold ourselves. So there's this concept of of a family redeemer. It's going to be a little different in our story, though. Uh, All right, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And we talked about the threshing floor. I talked about it just a little while ago. Uh, So he's down there working. Uh, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. All right, so Naomi, you can see in verse 1, feels responsible for Ruth's future. Um, You know, they're looking out for each other here. It's a a very nice story of these two women, if nothing else. Um, Boaz's work would have carried over past dark. Uh, He may have stayed with the grain all night to keep it from being stolen. You can imagine, 
And you can't just leave your big pile of grain you've been working for all day sitting out without someone to protect it. Uh, somebody would have snatched off with it. So he's probably going he's going to have worked all day and he's going to stay there during the night to, to make sure it's protected. All right, verse 6. So when she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. I'm just picturing this really big. <laughs> then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. <laughs> I guess that would have surprised him, if nothing else. Uh, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Uh, so she's kind of proposing here uh, in a way. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So um, it's she is proposing, basically, that he marry her. <laughs> um but used to when I read this and he said this kindness is greater than the first, I kind of thought he was flattered or something, you know, kind of like, oh, you could have gone after all these young people and more your age and, and this is, but he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the kindness he's showing Naomi. Um, she didn't go after younger men. She sought to marry within Naomi's family, um, staying true to her value her vow to follow Naomi's God and people. Uh, if they have a child together, um, this would provide the family heir for, for the husband's line. Um, so she's really looking to marry someone who could provide the heir that uh, uh, Naomi doesn't have anymore because she has no one to look out for her. And the way they viewed these things is that, you know, the uh, Redeemer, would uh, their child would be considered that bloodline's heir. So she hasn't gone out trying to fulfill her own whatever she wanted. She's trying to take care of Naomi here, and, and Boaz knows that too. So he's not, he's not just being flattered. <laughs> uh, he's just saying, wow, you know, all the kindness you've shown her, this is even greater than what you've done to this point. Um, so you can easily kind of look right over that and, and not realize what, what it's really happening. All right, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Um, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. I guess she's carrying her whatever she's wearing like this, and she's carrying it like that. Uh, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, The six measures of barley he gave for me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. 
She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Because you've got to remember, it's just beginning to be daylight. This isn't at night at this point. So she's like, oh, he's going to take care of something. (laughs) One way or the other, something's getting settled. Um, There's no immorality here. Uh, I know some people have tried to imply that. but nothing like that occurred. Uh, Boaz just didn't want there to be any appearance of it. You know, she's thought very well of already in in this town, and uh, so she leaves before it's light enough to be recognized. So it's not that they did anything wrong at all. Uh, she's on the on the floor. <laughs> so there's there's nothing bad that's happened here. All right. I think we're going to get through, which is good. All right, chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Okay, so the gate here, this, this kind of serves like a town hall or courthouse, and the elders were witnessing transactions. They decided cases. That, that's what's going on here. It's not just, hey, let's sit down and talk a while. This, this is almost like holding a little court in, in, in this town. Uh, so he's going to get this matter, matter settled with the uh, Redeemer who is closer uh, in kin than he is. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Uh, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the nearer Redeemer at first says that he will. Uh, Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. So it's fixing a change for him. Uh, The Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. So he's really laying it out. Uh, The guy didn't mind buying the land, but this throws a, a monkey wrench into it for him. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he's, you know, at first he's wanting the land, but he changes his mind after he knows he's got to care for Ruth and Naomi, which is kind of a package deal. And and actually Naomi's the one that owns the land, I guess. Um, but also, he says, any offspring they have, or, or it doesn't say it here, but it's implied, uh, his current assets might also be split with uh, heirs and children that he and Ruth might have. He doesn't want to mess that up. He doesn't want to muddy up his, his family situation already. Um, the first child, like I said, would be considered Naomi's, but any children after that are now his, his heirs, and so... His family situation would change quite a bit, and he he did not want to deal with it. I don't know if it was to the letter of the law that he would have to take Ruth. I, I don't think that's right. Do you deal? I, I think it's just the land. I mean, that's the way they've presented it, but but it doesn't really say that in what we read. 
in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but um, so I don't know. It kind of feels like maybe Boaz is doing that spirit of the law again where he's going, stretching it out maybe a little farther, but uh, I don't know. Uh, Neil says that is a package deal, so but uh, so that messes things up for him. He's not interested anymore, So, but we know Boaz is. Uh, all right, so verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm his transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So it's like the symbol of a transference here. Um, I'm kind of glad we don't do that now. <laughs> so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses that day that I have brought, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought, I bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of uh, his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. And who were Rachel and Leah? They're ones who fathered Israel. <laughs> um, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Um, yeah, I think I already said that. All right, so the big payoff here at the end for the, for the rest of us is the very end of this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, wow, that, that was a big thing to say there, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a uh, name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So God's providence in this whole thing leads to David, which is the line that Jesus comes from. So in the midst of all... This famine and death and then hopelessness, the line that Jesus eventually is born from happens. So you can't say that God's hand wasn't in this entire thing. He knew exactly what was going to happen. So, but without God, that whole line might not have happened. But obviously that was God's plan and that's the way it was going to be. So I told you something big happens at the end of this. It's not just a nice story. There's a, a... clear-cut message from God that, that this was all his doing. So, 
Alrighty, we actually got through it with about three minutes. So anybody want to comment or anything? Uh, anything you think of when you think of this story? Or yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, Naomi must have really impressed upon her her faith, and uh, she saw something more than what she had grown to know in her own land. Quite, quite a story, really. We could do more than an hour, but. <laughs> hmm. It's not important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mr. So and So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good story. We've probably all known all our lives, but uh, has deep, deep meaning, and there's probably. A dozen lessons you could take out of it if you wanted to, but we, d- we didn't do that tonight. So, <laughs> no. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess that's class then. Thank you all for your attention. <laughs>